Now, last time we noted that David had made a sincere effort to offer a neighboring king's son his condolences upon the death of his father. And he sent a group of emissaries to offer comfort and pay respects to the deceased king and comfort his son, uh, Hanan. Now, the response from the young Ammonite king, based on the words of his counselors or those instructions he received from them, was to shave off the men's beards or to shave off the, the half of the beard, that is, cut their togas off at their backside and send them home. Now, we made the point last time that shaving off a man's beard or even half of a man's beard was an act of disdain. And to some, they even saw it as a declaration of war. And we know that certainly this led to the war that followed in the balance of the chapter when we read of this act from this young king. In Hebrew and other Eastern cultures, the beard was so significant, it was called a man's greatest ornament. And cutting off a man's beard was an equal indignity to flogging or branding someone as you would a slave. Many men would rather die than shave off their beard, just like today. Now, 2 Samuel 10, 1 and 2, we're told it happened after this, that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. Now, we titled our time, One Thing Leads to Another, and made the point that while David seemed to be sincere in his efforts and desire to comfort Hanan, he seemed to forget the actions of his father Nahash in the past. And we read of it in 1 Samuel 11, 1 to 3, where we were told Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them on this condition, I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you, meaning they would surrender. Now, we do not know the act of kindness that David sought to repay, but it likely had something to do with his time on the run from King Saul. Saul responded to Nahash's threat in 1 Samuel 11 by rallying Israel to soundly defeat the Ammonites. And Nahash certainly never forgot this and likely showed kindness to David under the guise of the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now we made note that prior to David's time in Gath, to go live in Gath, because he thought Saul was eventually going to kill him, there was no mention of prayer. Only David making probably a fatigue and emotionally based decision. One day Saul's going to catch up with me. One day he's going to kill me, even though the Lord had protected him continually. So David made a prayerless decision and went and lived among the Philistines. Now I mention that for this reason. There's no mention of prayer here either. Uh, in chapter 10, that is only a sincere yet emotion based decision and response to Hanan and David's acts of kindness that eventually led to war. Yes, David was real in his efforts to comfort the king's son, and yet David failed to pray and ask if this was something the Lord would have him to do. Now, that taught us three things. One, good intentions are not a replacement for seeking God's will. 
We might have good intentions, but there's an adage that says a road that leads to a certain place is paved with what? Good intentions. The road to where? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And listen, we can have good intentions. We can be sincere in our efforts, but they are not a replacement for seeking God's will. And we secondly were reminded concerning our intentions that God blesses our efforts, not our intentions. We have to be careful on the other side of that coin, not to intend to do something, but actually get around to doing what we have vowed to do for the Lord. Now, we also noted that spiritual inactivity is the devil's opportunity. And we lean forward into verse one of our chapter tonight to highlight the foundation for what is going to occur next. After a severe battle recorded in chapter 10 that killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen, peace had been made with Israel. Now, let me just give you a reminder in case you're looking back into chapter 10. Chapter 10 says it was 700 uh, charioteers, but First Chronicles says, uh, 1918 says it was 7,000, which is more fitting with the scope of the battle and the number of the combatants. It's likely that a copyist inadvertently dropped a zero off of the number 7,000 in Second Samuel 10. Now, in 1019 of our last chapter, when all the kings who were servants to Hadad Ezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made what? Peace with Israel and serve them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. Now, it is possible that this peace that David was now enjoying, combined with all the years of running and hiding from Saul, led to David's decision in chapter 11, verse 1, which put David in, and here's our title, the wrong place at the right time. David was in the wrong place at the right time. In other words, it was the right time to do the wrong thing. Now, we mentioned last time that we have reached a transition in 2 Samuel, and we're moving from David's triumphs to a season of David's troubles. And the one decision we see here actually has a history behind it, but what we can note is from chapter 11, verse 1, To the end of the book, we're going to find things like these. An unwanted pregnancy, murder, the death of an innocent child, David's daughter raped by one of his own sons, another of his sons murders his rapist half-brother, followed by a civil war in Israel that was led by that same son. And that's a uh, basic summary of the balance of David's time as king. And listen, he was in the wrong place at the right time for a huge failure. And that led to a life of troubles that would plague him for the rest of his reign as king. And if there is one lesson we can learn above all others from this chapter, it is the importance of being where we should be, doing what we should do, instead of putting ourselves in the wrong place for the right time to fall. Somebody say... Amen. So would you stand and read with me, please? Second Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5. We'll cover the whole chapter, but we'll start with the opening five verses. Verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. 
And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. You may be seated. Now, it would be easy for us to attach all that follows in the balance of Second Samuel to what happened here. But what we read in this chapter was actually being sown into David's life for many, many years. If you remember in Genesis 2, to 24, we're told of the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wives. Is that plural? Singular? And the two shall become one flesh. Deuteronomy 17, 17 gave a specific set of instructions to those who would be king over Israel. One of them was, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And we made mention of horses as well in a previous chapter. Now, it is true that polygamy is recorded in the Bible, but we have to remember that doesn't mean it's endorsed by the Bible. It's simply a record of what was going on. When Eve was made from Adam, the Lord joined them together and they became one flesh. How many times at a time can you be made one flesh? That would be one, in case you're wondering. Now, David was also forbidden as king to multiply wives for himself, yet he did. Solomon took things to the next level. He had 700 wives, and as the boy in Sunday school said, 300 porcupines. Now listen, things are going to get prickly when you have more than one wife, amen? Now, listen, what that means is this. If you can't be satisfied with one woman, you're not going to be satisfied with a thousand. And that is exactly what was feeding all this in David, this type of uh, approach to how he addressed the fairer sex that the Lord had created for him. Now, as Joab and the army are engaging the Ammonites at Rabbah, David finds himself at the wrong place at the right time as he goes on the roof of his palace, possibly unable to sleep because he wasn't where he should have been. And he was wondering how things were faring with the army. And he spies a woman from his roof taking a bath on hers. Now, let me insert this reminder for us all from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation. Say no temptation. No temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to what? To bear it. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what the power of the Holy Spirit allows us to take the way of escape from. David should have gone back inside. That's where the story should have ended. David should have gone back into the palace 
And let me add this as well. Bathsheba had no business taking a bath on the roof in the sightline of the king's palace. Because of the extreme modesty of Jewish women at the time, some have sought to imply that it's possible that Bathsheba had her own motives in this scene. Now, whether that's true or not is irrelevant in the sense that David had the responsibility to take the way of escape. But after years of disobedience in this area, in his own life, he not only is in the wrong place, it's a right time for the enemy to exploit his sexual tendencies. Now, there's nothing, listen close, there's nothing in the language that implies Bathsheba was forced by David's messengers to go with them, nor is there any linguistic support for David forcing himself upon Bathsheba. It was consensual sex, as the phrase would say today. Now, it may be a stretch that she was hoping to see or that David would see her on the roof, but it isn't a stretch to say she could have refused his advances. Now, her bath likely signaled the end of her monthly impurity, which was evidence that she was not pregnant at the time of the encounter with David, and the child was definitely his. Now, David inquires about this woman. He is told she is the daughter of Eliam, one of David's 30 chief men. He's told that she is the wife of Uriah, one of David's 30 chief men. In 2 Samuel 23, 35-39, we're told of Eliphalet, the son of Abishai, the son of Machathite, uh, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, uh, Hezri, the Carmelite, Pariah, uh, Perai, I'm sorry, the Arbite. They put the vowels and the consonants in the wrong places sometimes in some of these names. Uh, Egal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, uh, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Berathite, armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the what? The Hittite, 37 in all of David's chief men. Ahithophel, uh, Eliam's father, and Bathsheba's grandfather would later become David's trusted advisor, but he would defect to Absalom when he sought to take the kingdom from his father years later. So David doesn't walk away when he should have. He doesn't walk away when he learns this woman is related to one of his champion warriors and married to another. And he later brings Ahithophel into his inner circle who never forgot what David did to his granddaughter and therefore defected to Absalom when the time came. David was in the wrong place at the right time to start a string of sinful disasters. Now, here's our takeaway tonight. Listen. Temptation may not be avoidable, but acting on it is. Temptation may not be avoidable, but acting on it is. Now, David could not have avoided seeing Bathsheba, but he didn't have to ask who she was. You guys still here? He didn't have to ask who she was. He didn't have to ignore the answer that she was related to some of his faithful men. And he certainly didn't have to send for her nor did he have to lay with her, nor did she have to lay with him. And in all the things I have heard over the years, there are two things I will never forget. Two things that I have heard that just blew my mind and continue to blow my mind today. And that might be a small explosion, but it still blows my mind. 
Now, one is after talking with a man and his wife, as she was continually frustrated that when she came home from work, he was always wearing her clothes. She had a problem with that for some strange reason. Now, after our counseling session, where he vowed not to do that anymore, he asked me if he could lead worship in the children's ministry. Can you guess what my answer was? Uh, that'd be no. No, you can't do that. Now, the second thing that has blown my mind over the years is actually the first place winner. There was a man who left his wife after 27 years and married another woman, left his wife, who was a godly and wonderful Christian woman, and he said this, if the Lord didn't want me to leave my wife, he never should have had that other woman come across my path. So you know what he did? He blamed God for his adultery. He said it was God's fault. Now, was it God's fault? No, absolutely not. James 1, 13 to 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by what? His own desires. That's what drew David away and enticed. He was enticed by what he saw. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And we'll see exactly how true that is in our next chapter. Now, it's not a sin to be tempted. Amen? Jesus was tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. We get tempted, but not by God. He tests us, but he does not put temptation to sin or stumble in our path. Now, when we do encounter temptation, we cannot do what David did. We don't make further inquiries about it. Listen, if you're tempted by drugs or alcohol and you're invited to a party where those things are going to be present, don't ask who else is going to be there. If someone says, you know, I know somebody who thinks that you're pretty handsome or cute and you're a married person, don't ask who it is. If someone says, I got a plan, it may not be completely legal, but we can make a lot of money, don't ask how much. Don't follow up on these things. Listen, David failed when his temptation first presented itself by not getting back in the house and putting that sight out of his mind, which would have never happened in the first place if he would have been where he should have been at the time of year when kings go out to war. Instead, he wound up at the wrong place at the right time for a great moral failure. Now, let's keep reading. We've got a long one here from 6 to 21. So read along with me, please. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, 
I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now, when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on it from the wall, that, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now at the news of Bathsheba's pregnancy, David and Bathsheba are obviously shook, and they are well aware of the consequences for their act according to the law. Leviticus 20.10 says the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be what? Put to death. Now, it is highly unlikely that David would have been put to death, not just because he was king, but likely because he was a man. And things may not have fared so well for Bathsheba. Now, remember when the Pharisees sought to trap Jesus and brought a woman to him in John 8 who was caught in the very act of adultery. And we've all heard the story of him writing in the sand. And when he wrote in the sand, the eldest to the youngest uh, departed and he was left alone standing there with the woman. Now, she was caught in the very act of adultery. Where was the man? Was he brought forward? What did the law say? They were accusing her and asking Jesus, what does the law say we are to do with her, hoping he would deny that the law required that she be stoned. He said, which of you is without sin? Cast the first stone. He wasn't saying, if any of you are sinless, you can throw the first stone. He was saying, whichever one of you are not sinning right now by this act, go ahead and throw the stone because the law required that the eyewitnesses who caught them be the first to throw the stone at the man and the woman. And Jesus was telling them, you're violating the law right now by your actions. So if you think you have the right to throw the first stone, let it fly. And to the oldest, they got it first. And finally, the youngest had it resonate in their minds and they left. David was more likely concerned about the people close to him and to Bathsheba finding out about what he had done rather than him being put to death. Now, he sins for a man who, unfortunately, at this point, is a better man than King David. And that is Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, a foreigner loyal to Israel, a Hittite. And he sets a scheme up to try and get Uriah to do what was right for any man home on leave. And that was spend time at home with his wife with a nice meal. Now, 
David says, after he inquires about the status of the battle, as though that's why he sent for Uriah, in the first first place, he tells Uriah, go home and wash your feet. That's simply code for, go home and get cleaned up. And then David sent home some certainly uh, kingly type food to the house uh, for the couple to dine on. But Uriah didn't go home. David asked him, why didn't you go home? Uriah's answer was, the ark and the army of God are dwelling in tents in a field. I'm not going to go enjoy an evening at home with my wife. Then David goes to phase two. First, he gives a little buffer of time, hoping that maybe Uriah would think, well, maybe I can go home. So a day and a half goes by. And then he gets Uriah drunk, hoping to lower his defenses and arouse his natural desires. But this fails again as Uriah slept not at home with his wife, Again, he slept in the quarters where the king's servants slept. Now, let me remind you of something we discussed a couple of weeks ago when we examined Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for who? A fool than for him. Now, David is acting the fool. And David is going to experience consequences for these actions. But David's behavior now is going to transition from foolish to downright evil as he devises a plan to have Uriah killed on the battlefield. And not only does he do that, but David is so self-absorbed at this point in time that he has Uriah carry his own death notice to Joab. Now, I, like you, am grateful for men like Joseph and Daniel and Nehemiah and women like uh, Deborah, of whom the scripture records nothing negative, but I'm equally grateful that the scripture tells us of some of the giants of the faith who had huge failures in their life, and yet God loved them, used them, and in his mercy forgave them. I don't know what the delay was all about there. That was, uh, that was something that we all should be thankful for. Think about Abraham, the friend of God. He gives his wife over twice to save his own skin to the Egyptians. David, a man after God's own heart, is certainly a prime example of the mercy and goodness of God. Now we're told in 2 Timothy 2.22 to flee youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a what? A pure heart. James 4.7 says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will do what? He will flee from you. David did neither of those things. He did not flee the lust of young men. He pursued them. He did not submit to God, so the devil pursued him. He writes a letter, has the intended victim deliver it. He trusts Joab enough not to share the information that's in it. And the plan comes off as designed, or so he thinks. Joab sends word back to David with specific instructions to the courier on what to say if the king gets mad. And if the king gets mad, just tell him Uriah is dead and implies that will calm him down. Now, Joab also is making sure that David didn't think that Joab had done something foolish on the battlefield and repeat a previous error that they were all familiar with as Joab sends word to the courier. So in essence, we have two men here who are looking out for themselves. One of them is willing to kill others to protect his reputation, and the other is more concerned about his reputation than the fact that he was just complicit in the murder of some of his own men. Now, what that tells us is this. Listen, here's our second observation. 
One sinful act or decision often leads to others. One sinful act or decision often leads to others. Anybody recognize that here tonight? Think about lying. How often does one lie require another to cover it? And so on, and so on, and so on. And listen, one sinful act usually leads to another. If repentance isn't immediate, as we see it is not with David. He could have cut this whole thing off, even if his mind was filled with impure thoughts. All he had to do was walk away. All he had to do was seek the Lord for forgiveness. And this whole story would not have been recorded in Scripture. In Acts 3.19, we're told, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I wanted to set this up because we're going to go into more detail regarding Psalm 32 next week. But for now, one of David's takeaway from the evil things that he had done was this. He said in Psalm 32, 9 to 11, Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and a bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, as I said, I am grateful for the Bible's record of the great men and women of faith and the Bible's record of the great men and women of faith who failed. And David's self-assessment in Psalm 32 was very accurate. He was stubborn like a mule, and the Lord had to put the bridle in his mouth like a horse through Nathan the prophet to get him back to where he should be in his walk and relationship with the Lord. And sinful actions and decisions seldom travel alone. They always have companions, and David proves it to be so. He sees Bathsheba, and instead of fleeing, he pursues. Because of his pursuit, she gets pregnant. Because she gets pregnant, he has Uriah killed. Joab becomes complicit in the murder of some of his own men. All of this will come back to bite David in the future, though through the Lord's mercies, David was not consumed. God is good. Amen? Amen. Now, let's finish off with 22 through 27. I'll let you guys get out of here and go toilet paper shopping. So the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot down from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased who? The Lord. Now the scope of David's sin broadens as we see that it was not only Uriah who died, other faithful servants of the king died too. This is the same man who would not stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed on multiple occasions. And even when his own nephew offered to kill Saul, as he had come upon him as he lay sleeping with Joab beside him, he said to Abishai, 
you shall not stretch out your hand against the Lord's anointed. Yet here he is now willing to kill to protect himself. And he has become so callous in his heart at this point in time in response to the news of Uriah's death. David, in essence, sends word to Joab through the courier and just says, these things happen. Don't let it bother you. Now hit the city, give it all you've got and take the city. Be encouraged. Now, we're told that David brought her into the palace. And Genesis 50.10 gives us an insight where we're told, Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. This is speaking of Joseph and the death of his father Jacob. And the point is, as far back as the time of Joseph, the mourning period for the Jews was seven days. Now, it is likely and even probable that at the end of this seven days, David or before it, David not reveal that he was actually responsible for Uriah's death. I heard some or I read some commentators who said she may have been a participant in it and well aware of the plan, but the Bible doesn't say it. So we won't either. Now, he takes her at the end of seven days. He takes her as one of his wives and brings her to the palace. Now, the text doesn't say this. The text doesn't imply it. But human nature bears this out, that this act was probably looked upon by the masses with great favor. Look what David did. One of his men was killed. He brought his wife into his own palace to look out for her and care for her. The truth was what the people saw was far different than what the Lord saw. And David's actions may have pleased the masses, but they displeased the Lord. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8, Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, and just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know that what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now, David rejected the will of God in the realm of sexual immorality for many years. He accumulated wives and he did not possess his vessel, his sexual desires, in sanctification and honor. He was driven by passion and lust and he defrauded his brothers and sisters, his fellow Israelis, by seemingly compassionate actions in their eyes. Now, looking at the whole of the scene, whether it was peace and living in the palace or his past failure in the area of uh, sexual obedience, when he was in the wrong place at the right time, his sin escalated into a disregard for life and his primary objective became self-preservation. Now, this is our final truth for the evening and a timely reminder for us all. Listen, there are no regrettable consequences for choosing to please God. There are no regrettable consequences for choosing to please God. 
listen, when you're in the wrong place at the right time for a fall and you walk away, you are never going to look back and say, I wish I would have failed back then. I wish I would have destroyed my life back then. I wish I would have made the wrong decision back then. Neither will you experience many of the things that David did downstream in his own life that were directly associated with his actions in this chapter. Now, Psalm 51, 10 through 12, David says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Now, Psalm 32 is believed to be associated with the events of chapter 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel, but there is no question that Psalm 51, as the heading of Psalm 51 says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So based on the content of Psalm 51, David could feel that his heart was dirty. And he asked the Lord to create in him a clean one. He knew in the spirit he had wavered. So he asked the Lord to make him steadfast in spirit. He felt the absence of the communion with God he once enjoyed. And he asked the Lord to restore it. And he appealed to God as being one of a generous spirit. And while the stage for failure in this area had long been set in David's life, the catalyst that took things to the next level as far as sin was concerned was what verse 1 said. In the spring of the year, at the time when the kings go into battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. But David remained in Jerusalem. The last sentence we read in chapter 11 is, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And listen, when we put ourselves in the wrong place, we become vulnerable to it being the right time for the wrong thing, the right time for a failure. And doing what is right before the Lord will never lead to regrets or the emptiness that David had experienced. And listen, doing what pleases the Lord may not please everyone else. And doing what pleases the Lord can lead to personal attacks. And doing what pleases the Lord can lead to persecution. But the aftermath is nothing like what David experienced. Listen, David shouldn't have been where he was. But even then, all he had to do was go back when he saw Bathsheba. Turn around, go back in his house. And the same is true for us. Should we find ourselves in a place that we shouldn't be, turn around, walk away, because sinful actions and decisions seldom travel alone. And temptation is unavoidable, but acting on it is not. Do what honors God, and you will never, ever regret it. These are lessons we can learn from the life and the troubles of King David. Somebody say, Amen. And Father, we are grateful for this chapter tonight, and we thank you most of all for the things that we have uh, accompanied this chapter with, the pleadings of David, the repentance of David, and your forgiveness. And Lord, thank you that you are the creator of clean hearts, even when one bears the title, the man after God's own heart. Thank you, Lord, that you don't cast us away when we fail. Thank you, Lord, that your word says when the righteous fall, he rises again. He can even fall seven times and rise again. And we thank you for these truths. Thank you for including 
the errors of David as well as his victories. Thank you for including, Lord, what we read of, of Gideon, where he was afraid and didn't want to be what you called him to be. Thank you that your word tells us that Moses hesitated at what you had ordained him to be and how he was going to deliver Israel. Thank you, Lord, you told him that you had made his mouth. So, God, we are grateful for the hesitations and the downright failures we see in those that you have used mightily throughout the history of Israel and beyond. Thank you that Peter, Lord, who denied you three times on the very night where he should have stood by you, but you chose him to preach the first sermon of the church era and add 3,000 souls to your kingdom. So we thank you for these mercies. We thank you, Lord, that as David called out to you and identified you as one being of a generous spirit, thank you that you are generous to us. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning, Lord, in all the times that we have not walked away when we should have. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, for this uh, country and our world that is just spinning out of control more and more by each day. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes lifted above the circumstances and on you. And, Lord, help us to live each day with a sense of expectancy that today could be the day that you come from the church. And help us, Lord to tell others the time is short, the day is at hand. And to be saved, that times of refreshing may come from you. We thank you for our time tonight and your matchless word. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.